Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus and we thank you afresh. Thank you that your mercies are new every single day. Thank you, Lord, that this is a day that you indeed have made and we will rejoice, Father. We will be glad in it. And we honor you, God. All we have is today. Yesterday is gone. Tomorrow is not promised. And so we thank you for the gift of today. And Lord, we want to make the most of it. Lord, we want to glorify you. We want to enjoy you here in this life, here and now. We want to enjoy the fellowship of of the body of Christ, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we thank you for the time of praise and worship that we have enjoyed. And now as we enter into the teaching of the Word, I pray that your blessing would be upon it. That your Holy Spirit would be moving here mightily. That you would open our eyes, that we would behold wondrous things from your Word. And that truly, God, we would be transformed. So we praise you, Lord. We trust you. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So we're going to be in Romans chapter 11, verse 7 today is where we're going to pick up. But I just wanted to start with a couple of introductory thoughts. I want to start with this statement. And I would say that oftentimes people start out in life in various ventures. They start out well. They start out humbly but can sometimes tend towards pride, towards self-exaltation, right? You may already kind of know what I'm talking about. Maybe you've experienced this. Maybe you have seen this. But I'd like to share a story with you from the Old Testament where we see a very extreme example of this. And so it's King Uzziah in Second Chronicles. You don't have to turn there. You may know that name. It's a, it's a popular name. He was a well-known king. He's mentioned in the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. But it says this in verse 3 that Uzziah was 16 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. So he was a young guy, 16 years old when he was raised up. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. I always love that statement whenever I hear that. That encourages my heart. Wouldn't you want that to be said of you? That we did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. And that that was Uzziah. Verse 5, he set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah. That was an Old Testament prophet, one of the minor prophets. It says that he instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him to prosper. Verse 7, it says God helped him against the Philistines and, and other nations that they often had to go to war against. God helped Uzziah in all of these exploits. Verse 9, it says, Moreover, that Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem and at the corner gate and at the valley gate and at the angle, and he fortified them. As you go down, it says that he began to talk about other accomplishments that he had. He had large herds, both in Shapila and in the plain, and he had farmers and vine dressers and hills, fertile lands. It says, Moreover, verse 11, that Uzziah had an army of soldiers fit for war. And it goes on to talk about how he had advanced his army in so many different ways. In verse 15 it says, In Jerusalem he made machines invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and great stones. And his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped. His fame spread far. He was very accomplished, very successful. Why? Because he was mightily helped. That is the grace of God. That is Nothing short than the kindness and the favor of God toward him. And it says this, till he was strong. Then you have to say, uh-oh, that, 
sometimes can be a sign of trouble because in the very next verse, verse 16, it says this, but when he was strong, he grew proud. He grew proud to his destruction for he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. And listen to this. This is an interesting story here. He was a very humble man, very successful man, really sought to be trained in the ways of the Lord and to honor God and to do that which was right in God's eyes. God prospered and blessed him. But then this. It says, For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. This was something that was only for the priest to do, but he decided that he was going to go in and he was going to take this duty upon himself. So verse 17, But Azariah the priest went in after him, and with eighty priests of the Lord who were men of valor, they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priest, the son of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. And so, I love this picture. you got this king, this rogue king going into the temple now and he's going to take this priestly duty upon himself. This very arrogant move. And you have this priest who withstands him and you got all of these mighty men of valor, these other priests that step up in the name of the Lord to oppose him and to stop this from happening. So this is his response. It says in verse 19, Uzziah was angry. And he had a censer in his hand. He was going to do it anyways. He was going to go in and burn incense. And when he became angry with the priest, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priest and in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And so they see this. They recognize what has happened. God strikes him there on the spot and they all panic. So they grab him and rush him out of there. And it says in verse 21, this very tragic statement, And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. And being a leper, lived in a separate house where he was excluded from the house of the Lord. And so we see this story of somebody who was uh, highly favored and blessed of God. Had such a great and humble beginning. Really sought the Lord. God blessed him. He prospered until he grew strong. And then it was all downhill from there. And that can happen so often in life. We see that kind of thing happen in the workplace. You see somebody who is very humble, very faithful, very hardworking, and then they start to climb that ladder a little bit, and then they get a little bit of power, and then all of a sudden the tyrant comes out, right? They may become very domineering, even abusive, belittling other people. I think that can so often be the tendency of humanity. And the Pharisees, we know the Pharisees well, right? We hear uh, stories of them quite often in the New Testament and the Gospels. And usually when people talk about the Pharisees, it's very critical. Well, those guys had a great start. The, the name, uh, it literally is something like the separated ones. And the idea was that they were the back-to-the-Bible people. Religion was corrupt, government was corrupt, and they said, you know what, we're throwing all of that off, we're going back to the Bible, and we're going to do things right. And they started out well. But we know the story, as they went on, and as they grew powerful, and they had great um, influence in the land there, uh, people really looked to them as an authority, a religious authority, what happened? They became very corrupt. That power got to their head. They loved the praises of men. And we know that ultimately they had a very devastating downfall when it was all said and done. So I think that oftentimes we can see this happen on a major scale. We can see this happen in the everyday uh, mundane things of life. This is in the heart of man. Now God's grace, God's grace ought to counteract that. 
when we consider all that God has done for us and that all that we have is a gift from God, who are we to, to, uh, to rise up with any kind of pride or any kind of arrogance? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.10, he says, but by the grace of God I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. So Paul recognized that if there was anything good in him, if there was anything that he did well for the Lord, it was purely the grace of God that made him who he was or caused him to accomplish or achieve the things that he did. And that was a real posture of humility. Real posture of humility. And we want to be marked by that. As followers of Christ, as people who call upon the name of the Lord, we want to be marked as people with humility. And I think that pride is one of the things that is ever before us that we have to battle. Pride. And you know, the Bible makes very clear that God is love. We praise God that He is. But the Bible also makes clear that there are things that God hates. And one of the things that He hates, it would seem more than any other thing, is pride. And I think that there's something um, especially disgusting to God, and that is spiritual pride. When we elevate ourselves and we begin to look down on others or to think somehow we're special, and uh, we begin to exalt ourselves, then I think that that really grieves God's heart. God hates that. And I think that's what we're going to kind of see in this text today. Paul sees the potential for the church, the Gentiles, to begin to raise themselves up, to elevate themselves. And Paul is going to give some, some admonitions, I think, to try to counteract that, to help fight this tendency. And so as we look at our text today, I'm going to break it down into three different portions, three different points. And the first is to recognize that it's God's work. God's working. It's His work. It's not mine. It's not yours. It's God. He is the one ultimately bringing things to pass. He is ultimately the one pulling the strings, if you will. It's not me. It's not you. That ought to give us great humility. Two, remembering that God has His own purposes. God does what He does because it's for His own purpose, His own pleasure, His own delight, His own plan, and it's not solely for us. We're not the center of it all. And so we have to recognize, remember that God has His own purpose. And then lastly, we're going to see how we are admonished to revere God's goodness and His severity. God is a very good God. He is so very kind to us. But He can also be a very severe God. And we're going to talk about what I mean by that. It's in the text. So we are going to be encouraged to reverence God, to revere Him for His goodness, yes, but also His severity. And so this is the message. It's called, Stay Small. Stay Small. It's a warning against spiritual pride. I can't help but think of King Saul the first king of Israel. Um, he was installed. Things were going okay for a little while. Things started to go really bad. And the prophet Samuel came to him and rebuked him and said, when you were small in your own eyes, had God not anointed you and made you king over all of Israel? And I've always liked that phrase, small in your own eyes, little in your own eyes. That's a great place to be. That's a great place to stay. I've heard it said like this, get low and stay low. Get low and stay low. It's a safe place to be. And so that's Paul's encouragement. Stay small. Get low. Stay low. 
So a little bit of context here, a little bit of context real quick. We've been in chapters 9, 10, and now 11, and that in a whole is the context. And it starts out by talking about this unceasing burden that Paul has for his countrymen, for the Israelites. He loves them dearly. He's grieved for them greatly. And his prayer is that they would be saved. That they would be saved. But there is some kind of a hardness that has come over them, this, this blinding, and we'll be talking more about that. And he says they are indeed zealous. They are super passionate, but in ignorance. Zeal with ignorance. Now I talked about how dangerous that can be. Chapter 9, verse 30, he says this, What shall we say then, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith? So the Gentiles who weren't even trying, weren't even seeking righteousness, found it. God sought them out. God raised them up. And through faith, they were made right before God. But verse 31, Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness because they insisted upon earning it. They insisted upon doing works to earn favor before God, and that could never work. So the Gentiles got it, the Jews did not. Verse 32, why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. So the Jews didn't get it. God's chosen people, they did not get the thing that they were seeking, God's righteousness, because they went about it the wrong way. But who did? Who did get God's favor? Who did get God's Righteousness. The Gentiles, the non-Jews. It's a, it's a very general term. It's basically anyone who's not a Jew. So that would probably be most of us in this room, I would say. The Gentiles. And it would seem that Paul's anticipating spiritual pride is going to come out of this. The Gentiles may begin to look at the Jews and may have even a, a, a spirit of anti-Semitism. They may raise themselves up and say, we got it. And that's the very thing that the Jews had done. Right? The Jews began to see themselves as God's special people and look down their nose at everyone else and to uh, treat them with um, real disdain. And so it seems like Paul is now warning the Gentiles not to think more highly of themselves than they ought, not to fall into that same trap, but to get low and to stay low. So with that, we enter into our text. So. We're going to be looking at the fact that this is God's work. Recognizing that this is God's work. Verse 7. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. So this is a little transitional statement here. What then? It's pointing back to verses 5 and 6. You'll recall uh, Paul references Elijah and the story where Elijah had this awesome victory on Mount Carmel over the prophets of Baal. And then he came off the mountain and realized that the queen was coming for his head. And then he was really discouraged and really despondent. And he, he cried out to God and said, Lord, I'm the only one left. All of Israel has turned aside. They've killed all your prophets and there's no one but me. And God said, look, that's just not the case. I have kept 7,000 people, 7,000 men for Myself who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So there was this remnant that God had kept, that God had preserved. And this was by grace, Paul said. So it's according to the election of God's grace. God has kept people for Himself, the elect, and this was all an act of grace. And then it says, and if it, if it was not of grace, it would be of works. Grace would no longer be grace. And so it's always God's grace, never of works. And so that's what 
he's kind of pointing back to. So in light of that, in light of the fact that it's all by grace and not of works, that the Gentiles have received it and the Jews have not, says what then? So what's the bottom line here? And he says this, Israel has not obtained it. They have not obtained what they were working for. They did not find God's righteousness. But God's elect has. They have obtained it by grace. They have obtained it by grace. God's elect. And that is to say God's chosen people. Now, I've talked about this, I think, a few times from the pulpit in the last um, month or so. And I've, I've used this term, elect, a number of times because it's, it's in the text. And so I would like to take just a moment to speak very directly to this because I'm entering into territory now that is uh, hotly debated in the church and has been for a couple thousand years even. And so I've tried to just really say what the text says and not get um, into that whole issue, that whole debate. But I think we have a handful of people, if not more, in the, in the church here who are into this and they understand all the nuances and, and I, I would like to speak to that. If you don't really know the, the issues of election and predestination and Calvinism and Arminianism as it is so often referred to, my encouragement is don't, don't even worry about it. Don't even go there. You might just be doing yourself a favor. And so um, you certainly can. It's, it's very fascinating. Um, but uh, for those who, who do, I, I would like to just speak to it. So here we're told that God's elect have obtained His righteousness and that the rest were blinded. So who are God's elect? That's the question. And people have very different views on what that means, God's elect. And we know what the word itself means. It's, it's very plain. It's very obvious. I've talked about that before. These are people that God chose, that, people, that God elected to salvation. Now, people have different views on what that means, what that looks like. Some people have a very strict uh, view of this, and they say that God, before the foundation of the world, elected a certain people that He would save, and then He chose to not elect other people. So there were people who God chose to save. They would be saved no matter what. And there were others that God chose not to save and they would remain in a, a state of essentially being damned. And that's, that's kind of a strict view. Uh, others have the view of election that God could see down the corridor of time, as it were, and He knew who would choose Him if given the opportunity. And so being that God has this foreknowledge of those who would choose him he essentially chooses them first and that's God's election and then there's other kinds of um, ways in which people might use it but that's that's really the main two that you have and so I just wanted to kind of say this uh, you can go way too far in both directions you can go way too far in both directions and there's certainly room in the middle and there's certainly room to disagree. And so within this church at Calvary Chapel, our stance is more of uh, neutrality. It's kind of a mystery. Um, there are certain scriptures that seem to be crystal clear, but then there are other scriptures that seem to make it fuzzy again. And so we don't want to polarize ourselves or um, you know, alienate any side. So we remain neutral and, and balanced and People can have differing views on how all of this works out, and that is perfectly fine. We welcome you to do that. And so um, you may believe that it is a cooperative effort between God and the sinner, that God 
uh, extends His grace, but that you have to essentially reach back out and receive it. You may believe that it is solely a work of God, that God extends His grace and you're going to come. You have no... You have no say in the matter. And that's, that's called irresistible grace. When God calls, you will come. I mean, you can't, can't help yourself. Your eyes are open to the majesty of God's goodness and His grace. So you will be drawn or called effectually. And so that's, that's kind of the debate here. And I, I don't want to pick a side here um, or try to indicate one or the other. I just want to say that we're free to have this discussion. We're free to, to stand in different places on this. It's not a gospel issue. It's not a gospel-centric issue. You know what I mean? And so I just wanted to make that, that plain because people can get really upset over these things. And it's unfortunate. And as I said, you can go too far with this. So people who would say, go to the, the extreme of maybe the Arminian view, that man's free will. That's what they really emphasize. That ultimately man is free. Libertarian free will is, is what it's called free from any kind of outside uh, restraint or compulsion. And you can go too far with that and say that, that you didn't even need any kind of um, intervention from God, that you totally had it within you to approach God or reject God without Him even having to draw you on any level. No necessity of grace whatsoever. And people who go that route, I have noticed, often begin to go all the way to a place of moral perfection, there are a lot of uh, denominations out there that would teach that, that you can attain to perfection, that you're totally free, and that you can um, pursue God uh, without any necessity of God drawing you in, and that you could essentially become morally perfect. That's, you know, that's totally erroneous. But then you have people who go to the other end, what they call hyper-Calvinism, and that looks like, well, I don't know if you're chosen by God, so I can't tell you that God loves you. I can't tell you that God, that Jesus died for you. Or you'll often hear people say um, there's no need to evangelize because the elect are going to come, period. Or, uh, well, they're chosen and they can't do anything about it one way or the other, so they can just live however they want to live. Sin all day long. doesn't matter you're elect. So you see how you can go to the extreme in both directions, and both are totally uh, erroneous when you start getting to those extremes. So that's why we like to kind of rest in the middle and just say, you know, there there's, seems to be this, uh, this balance uh, between God's choosing and man's responsibility. And Spurgeon said it best when asked how does he reconcile God's, uh, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And he said, I have no need to reconcile friends. And so the two just marry together in some way that we don't fully understand. It's an antinomy of the Scripture. It's two things that side by side seemingly would be contradictory, but they, they marry together in this way that's uh, above our ability to, to understand. So there's just a little flyover um, teaching on the issue and the debate of <clears throat> God's sovereignty and man's free will. And so you may have a differing view on what elect is, but what we know is that God has, uh, has an elect and they have obtained His favor. And the rest were blinded. So the rest were blinded. And that's a challenge for us, that, that idea, that God has, has blinded people. And I would say that that is God confirming them in their state of rebellion. We are all naturally uh, rebellious in, in our sin uh, sinful state, our sinful nature, and God will allow people, maybe even harden people, into that, that rebellion 
for his own sovereign purpose. But you know, there's a flip side to this that I think we're all very grateful for. Don't we often pray, God, would you strengthen me in my faith? God, would you confirm me in my love for you? Uh, we certainly want God to take and strengthen us and confirm us in our love and our obedience and our desire for Him, do we not? And so there's kind of two different sides to this coin. We're told that God will confirm people in their rebellion, but we also know and believe and, and love the fact and pray for God to confirm us, to strengthen us, to solidify us in our faith, in our love, in our obedience. Amen? And so essentially... Just praising God for His sovereignty. He's in control. This is His work. He's doing it. And we get to be a part of it. We get to be a part of it. So verse 8, Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And so you have the elect of God who have obtained His blessing and favor, but then you have those whom God has blinded, the Jews that we know rejected the Messiah, the Christ. And here, Paul is referencing Isaiah 29.10 and Deuteronomy 29.4. These are very significant texts, one of which Jesus actually alludes to uh, quotes in the Gospels. And we're told here, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, ears that they should not hear to this very day. God has done this. This is judicial hardening. And that is to say that in their state of rebelliousness and wickedness, God hardened them in that. He confirmed them in that. It's a judicial hardening. He was totally righteous and totally just in doing so because all they deserved is wrath and judgment because we're all guilty before God. Outside of Christ, we stand condemned. We are naturally rebels of God. We aren't seeking after Him. We don't do good not uh, in such a way that would earn us favor with God. And so um, at some point with certain people, we're told God actually confirms them in that and it gives them this, this spirit of stupor. It's interesting here, this uh, word spirit of stupor. It's only used one time in the New Testament. The Greek word is katanuxis. And that doesn't mean anything. I just say it to sound extra sophisticated. All right? Uh, but it literally, it means stupefaction. And I had never heard that word before, but I like it. It's like stupefied. But it, it means to be struck violently and to be bewildered, essentially. And I think we could probably all understand that. Someone who's concussed or struck in the head in such a way that they're totally dazed. Um, and I, I've had this experience as a, as a teenager try to put some space between me and the story, the time frame. Uh, when I was a teenager, I thought it would be a good idea to ride on the back of a moving car. And so it seemed like a good idea at the time. And my, uh, my buddies that were drive, uh, driving uh, were trying to tell me get off the car, and I wouldn't do it. So they thought a good idea would be to scare me and to gun it. And so they did that. And the last thing I remember is the feeling of sliding off the trunk. And I know that my feet were crossed over my head and I landed straight down on my head and uh, cracked my skull uh, from here to here and tore my ear about half off and busted my eardrum. Some of you are probably thinking, okay, that, that explains a lot to me right now. 
And so, anyways, I don't remember anything after that for the next couple of days. And I just, I don't remember. All I know is that they were telling me that I kept saying I was bleeding out of my ear and my nose. And so I would realize that I'm bleeding out of my ear and I would say that and they would say, yes, we know. And I would say, that's not good. And they would be like, yeah, we know. And then I'd, I'm bleeding out of my ear. And that would go on and on. And so that was stupefaction. That was struck violently and just totally ob- oblivious, right? And so at any rate, that's what we're told here, that there was this spiritual stupefaction that happened, this being struck and bewildered, uh, an inability to perceive truth, eyes that don't see, ears that don't hear. And then verse 9 and 10, he quotes David. It says, and David says this, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. And so this is a prayer of David in Psalm 69, verses 22 through 23. This is what we call an imprecatory prayer. And this is uh, basically calling down God's judgment upon His enemies. We're not to pray like this. You know, there was, um, the Old Testament was a little different. And we really saw God in His uh, judgment and in His wrath so often. God revealed Himself to us that way in the Old Testament. It was necessary for us to know that about God. That God is dangerously holy. That He is a God of wrath. And He is to be feared. And so, David would pray like that against his enemies and against the enemies of God, calling down this divine curse. But now, we are in the age of grace. And God's wrath is being stored up. We're in the church age. And grace is being extended through the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. And now we're told to pray for our enemies, right? I'm sure we would love to pray some imprecatory prayers against some folks, right? I'm sure you could probably think of one or two, but we're not to do that anymore. But David did, and Paul quotes him of saying these things and and essentially connects the dots to what God is doing to His enemies and that He is blinding them. So the question is, is this a permanent blindness? Is this permanent? And that's what uh, he's going to begin to deal with in the following verses. So this brings us to the second point. And that is, remember that God has His own purposes. We've seen that it is God at work. God is sovereign. He has His elect, those who have obtained to salvation and those who have been blinded. It is God's doing. It is God's work. It's His prerogative and He has the right. But now we're going to see that it's according to His own purpose. God has His own purpose in mind. His own plan. And we are subject to that. Verse 11, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So the question is, if God has essentially rejected them, if they have rejected the Gospel, if they have rejected their Messiah, and God has given them a spirit of of blindness, is He done with them altogether? Have the Jews forever fallen away? National Israel. And He answers that question. Certainly not. I've talked about this several times before. It's almost like outrage at the question. It's a very strong word in the Greek. Absolutely not. God forbid. May it never be. Certainly not. And then we're told that God is actually using their stumbling to bring about His desired end. God uses their rejection to bring salvation to the world. And we'll talk more about that 
in just a moment. But I love this about God. It's God's providence. It's amazing the things that God can take and use to advance His cause. And one of the things I love so much is that God can take my own failures and my own shortcomings and get good out of that. We're told that He does do that in Romans chapter 8. He's able to cause all things to work together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. I cling to that promise. So often I claim that promise. Lord, I have messed up, but please redeem it. You can still use it to get glory, to make me more like Christ. Uh, and who knows what else God can do. And so we see that. God was able to take even the, the rejection of the Jews and bring so great a salvation to all of the world. And it's amazing we see God do these kinds of things even in the Old Testament when His, His people, the Jews, uh, Israel, had turned so far from Him and began to worship all of these disgusting and gross idols and all of the types of worship that came along with it. God judged His people. And so He brought the Babylonians in to take His people out of the land for a prescribed amount of time, the 70 years. But then God turns around and judges the wickedness of the Babylonians for coming in and doing that to His people. And so it's amazing how efficient God is. And on a world scale, God is moving from every generation all around the world on a global scale, but then at the same time, He knows every hair that's on your head. At the same time, God is intimately acquainted with every aspect of your life. Every care, every concern, every doubt, every fear, every failure, every hope, every dream, every aspiration, God knows it all. Isn't that awesome? And He's able to work all things together in such a way. All things together in such a way to bring about His desired end in your life. God does that. God, that's God's providence. Verse 12, it says, Now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? So if their rejection of the Christ meant riches for the world, indeed it did bring riches to the world. We're told in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, that Jesus, though He was rich, He became poor. That through His poverty we might become rich in Him. Amen? So Jesus, who dwelt in heavenly glory and was rich in every way imaginable, set that aside. He did not cling to that. He emptied Himself, came to this world, and became poor. Lived a life of, of poverty, actually, and, and humble submission to His earthly parents and total obedience to the heavenly Father. And then He died the sinner's death on that cruel cross, surrounded by those who would mock Him, and torture Him, totally rejected, abandoned by those closest to Him, forsaken, forsaken even of the Father upon the cross. He became poor in every way imaginable that we could be rich and that those riches would go to all of the world in Him, that we would be accepted in Him and that we would be beloved of the Father and that we would be made new in Jesus Christ. Truly, riches have gone out to the world through their rejection because they rejected Him, riches went out to the world. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But Paul says this, what will their reception be? If their rejection of Christ meant riches for the world, what will their acceptance of Christ mean? Now, this is a mystery to me. There's some mystery in this statement. I don't know exactly what the answer is, but I can tell you this, whatever it is, it's good. That much he's trying to emphasize here. But I, I can only imagine this. How amazing will it be 
when we see the Jews brought back in. When national Israel's eyes are opened to their Messiah and they worship Him and they praise Him. And I talked about that last week. There's a verse in Zechariah where it says that they will look upon Him whom they pierced and they will mourn as one who mourns for his only son. And so there's a time when national Israel, their eyes will be opened, that spirit of stupor will be lifted, and they will recognize that it was Jesus all along. And they will repent, and they will mourn, and they will worship Him. That's going to be an amazing thing to see. I mean, do you get excited when you see people worship God? Do you get excited when you see God get glory? Because God is worthy of glory. And that's what God is doing. God is getting glory for Himself. And He's getting it through us in this room right now. So there's so, something so wonderful and special about bringing glory to God. There's something so amazing about seeing other people bring glory to God. Amen? And I can't imagine what it will be like to see the Jews in masses repenting and worshiping the one whom they rejected. You know, it's awesome to see people receive mercy. I think that's the other side of this. We're going to see a people who are not a people right now. They're, not, they're no longer God's people in the sense that the blessing is to the church. That God is saving people through Christ and He is building His church. But there's going to come a time when even national Israel's eyes are open and they will come into the church too. Because it is only through the finished work of the cross that anyone can be saved and enter into the blessings of God. And so there's going to be a time when they're going to get mercy. I don't know about you guys, but when I see people get mercy, there's something that stirs my heart up. And I think, I love God. I love God. I love that God is merciful because I know this, I need His mercy. Do you know that? I mean, you may know that I need His mercy, but do you know that you need His mercy? Do you know that you need His mercy every single day? Do you rejoice in the fact that His mercies are new every single day, every single morning? And so to see a people worship God... And to bring Him glory, to see a people who receive mercy, I can see how Paul would say if their rejection was riches for the world, how amazing will their acceptance be? How amazing will their fullness be? So verse 13, he says, For I speak to you as to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. So Paul's making it very clear. He's talking to the Gentiles here, the, the non-Jews. And as I said, this, this is a really Jewish book. I, I didn't realize that at first. And so often he's, he's definitely talking to the Jews in this book, seemingly going back and forth, but he makes it clear he's talking to the Gentiles. And he says, I myself am an apostle to the Gentiles. Now he had, he had an amazing um, resume. And if anyone could have been qualified to go and be uh, sent to the Jews, it was him. But God chose to send Saul, who became Paul, Paul the Apostle, to be a minister to the Gentiles. And he said that um, he magnifies his ministry. That is to say, he gladly flaunts this. He shows it off to the world that he is sent to the Gentiles. Why? That he could provoke the Jews to jealousy. Because the Jews, as I said, they really had a, a very lifted up view of themselves. They called the, the Gentiles Hagoim, and that means other people. And so the idea is there's us, God's chosen people, and there's everyone else, the other people. They're on the outside, we're on the inside. And so um, 
When Paul said, I have been called by God to bring salvation, the message of salvation to the Gentiles, they would flip out about that. They did not like that. But he said, you know what, I gladly flaunt that. I magnify that if it makes them jealous that I might save some of them, that they would come to Christ through that. And I couldn't help but think about this. You know, when people are emotionally charged at the gospel, when they seem to be very upset, angry, antagonistic, that's actually a good sign. Uh, God's doing something there. I think they're really close. Um, when people can just smile and nod and they're not really affected by it, it just seems to go right over the head and they just kind of move on to the next thing, uh, that can be discouraging. But just take heart. If someone that you are wanting to share the Lord with or are currently trying to minister to seems to be angry or upset, that's actually a good sign. I mean, you might get punched or something, and that's not cool. But, you know, be encouraged. Suffering for Christ Jesus. All right. So verse 15, For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So their being cast away meant reconciliation for the world. So there's this story in the Gospels. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus tells about this master of the house who was going to put on this great dinner and he sent his servants out to invite. And the servants went out to begin to invite people in and there were all of these excuses that were given as to why they could not, would not come. So then the master says, go back out, go into all of the highways, all of the byways, that's literally the main roads, the side roads, the hedges, people in the bushes, go after them and invite them in. And so there was this, there was this invitation that was extended but rejected, so then the invitation went out all the way out, anyone and everyone. And so that is how their being cast away, their rejection of their Messiah ended up meaning reconciliation for the whole world. Jesus came to the Jews. He came to His own. He was rejected by them. His own did not accept Him. So then the message went out to the whole world. And this is that message of reconciliation that God is reconciling sinners to Himself. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to Himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So their being cast away meant reconciliation for the world, and our God is a reconciling God. Amen? That is what He is doing through His Son, Jesus Christ. We were at enmity with God. There was no peace there. There was no love from us to Him. We had offended God. God was greatly offended by our rebelliousness, our wickedness, our transgression, our rejection. But God reconciled us to Himself through His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus came and lived the life that we cannot live. Perfect obedience in every single way. Tempted in every way, yet without sin. Perfectly holy, perfectly pure, perfectly sinless in every sense. But then... He took the punishment upon Himself that all of us deserve, that indeed the whole world deserves. On that cross, He paid for sin. On that cross, He made atonement. 
on that cross, He secured for us so great a salvation because the One who indeed did not deserve to die gave Himself willingly, willingly on our behalf. And on that cursed tree, He absorbed the wrath of God. He took God's wrath against our sin upon Himself, washing that sin away forever. As far as the east is from the west, I love that verse, our sin has been removed and it happened at the cross. And we are reconciled. We are brought back. We are redeemed and we are restored to a loving God. Amen? That is the message of reconciliation. That is the ministry of reconciliation. Jesus accomplished that for us. We have received this reconciliation and we are to share this message. We are to be ambassadors of reconciliation to the world. Our God is a reconciling God. Amen? That is the Gospel. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. That is the good news. And it is great news. Is it not? It's the best news. Can I get an amen in here? Let's get Southern from it. Can I get an amen in here? Amen. All right. All right, so the last point, last point, and we'll move uh, quickly through this. I talked about recognizing that it's God's work, remembering that it's according to God's purpose, and now revering God in His goodness and severity. Keeps us in a place of humility. Helps us to stay small, to get low and stay low. Verse 16, and this is really where the point of this all comes together. Paul's getting ready to set up an analogy here. He's going to make an illustration talking about an olive tree and, and various branches in the tree. So he sets it up here in verse 16. He says, For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is holy also. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So this is Old Testament sacrificial language. People would bring a harvest that they had reaped. They would take a portion of it and give it back to God. So that portion is holy to the Lord. And so Paul is saying if that portion is holy to the Lord and since the whole of the harvest is holy to the Lord and if the roots of a tree are holy then the tree itself is holy. And, and we, we understand that. Jesus said if a, a tree is good it will produce good fruit. If it's bad, bad fruit. Orange tree doesn't produce apples. Jesus didn't say that. I said that. And so the, kind of the idea here the tree itself is holy and good and so are the branches. Well, verse 17, it says, And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, the Gentiles, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but that the root supports you. So the Jews, they are the olive tree of God here. Some of the branches have been broken off through rejection, and then the Gentiles have been grafted into the tree. They have uh, been made a part of what God is doing here, and He's saying we have no right to brag or boast against the Jews in any way. In any way. In some ways, that is the foundation, the Old Testament. God had a chosen people that He called to Himself, and through those chosen people came the Messiah, the Christ, who would bring salvation to all of the world. And He fulfilled what God was doing in the Old Testament and has done a brand new thing, the New Testament. And so we're a part of that. But in some ways, the foundation of that is found in the Old Testament. And so Paul is essentially saying, the Jews aren't bad, the Old Covenant is not bad, that is good, and you stand on the shoulders of the Jews. You enjoy so many blessings that have come from all of that that God was doing. So 
you stand on their shoulders. You are supported by them. Don't brag against them. Don't look down on them. Recognize that. And that's important for us to understand. The Old Testament is so crucial for us as New Testament believers. There is a movement afoot that would say that we need to unhinge the Old Testament and get rid of it. That is simply not the case. I mean, when Jesus came on the scene and John the Baptist cried out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What in the world would we make of that if we didn't have the Old Testament? And so, so much of what we know, understand, and enjoy comes from that foundational revelation in the Old Testament. And so we don't want to begin to treat that like it's unnecessary or less than. It's a beautiful thing. God has invited us in to be a part of what He is doing. And we can in no way become spiritually lifted up or prideful in the process. So verse 19, You will say then, Branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He may not spare you either. And so we're getting into some challenging territory here. This is one of the, uh, one of the uh, more strong warning passages in the New Testament. And he essentially says this, you will say that branches were broken off that I might be brought in, that I might be grafted into this tree. And he said, well said. That is a true statement, but there's some arrogance in that. And Paul's going to address that now by saying it's because of unbelief that they were broken off in the first place. It was because of their rejection, their unbelief, their persistence in doing it their way, not God's way, they were broken off. And you stand by faith. You were grafted in because of faith. And even faith is a gift from God. The Scriptures are very clear about that. So you really didn't do anything there uh, to somehow think that you're special or you brought something to the table. And I love that quote by Jonathan Edwards. I've said it before. I'll say it again. You contributed nothing to your salvation but the sin that made it necessary. You know? And I, I like that. That's so true. I definitely contributed to my salvation. The sin that made my salvation necessary and so um, he's saying, don't boast against the branches. And he says, do not be haughty. Don't be puffed up. Don't be lifted up. Don't be prideful. He says, instead, fear. Essentially, don't fall into the same trap that the Jews did. Don't begin to look at yourself like you're so great. You're so special, high and lifted up. And then there's me, there's us, and then there's all those people. Don't fall into that trap. Don't fall into that trap. And he says, if God didn't spare them, He may not spare you. So it's like, uh-oh, what do we do with that? Essentially what he's saying is, we're no better than them. We're no better than, than them. God's chosen people don't begin to think that you are. And if God dealt severely with them, He'll deal severely with you. Verse 22, Therefore consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you goodness if you continue in His goodness, otherwise you will be cut off. He says, therefore consider. That is, think carefully about these things. Don't just pass over this. Meditate on this. Think carefully. And what are we to think carefully about? The goodness and the severity of God. The goodness of God, it may not be necessarily what you think it is. The, the theological uh, framework, the theological definition for God's goodness is his desire to maintain his own happiness and the happiness of those to whom he has set his affection on. His benevolence, his generosity, his kindness. He, he desires to maintain happiness and, and it's an extension of his goodness and his people. And we are recipients of that. 
And so we ought to be grateful for that. We ought to walk in that. We ought to thank God for that. We ought to try to keep ourselves in that place. As Jude says, Beloved, keep yourselves in the love of God. But then he says, Consider the severity of God. The severity of God. And the word here, severity, it means sheerness. It's like a steep drop off a cliff or abruptness. And so the idea is that God is loving, God is patient, God is kind. But there is a point when it's like a steep drop. You're just walking along, you're not you know, minding the things of God, and there comes a point when, just like that, drop. And so that's the idea of severity. And so we're told that there is goodness towards us who believe, but severity upon those who fell. And then he says that, um, if, uh, that we ought to consider His goodness and severity to continue in His goodness, otherwise you will be cut off. So what is this, you will be cut off? Is he saying that we can lose our salvation? Is he saying that, um, that if we don't walk a certain way, that God could uh, essentially wash His hands of us and be done? There's a lot of debate around this, obviously, and I don't plan to clear it up, but I would say, again, this is one of those, I used the word already, an antinomy of Scripture. Two things that seemingly are against each other, but they stand side by side. I've talked about these before. Jesus Christ is truly God, truly man. That's, he's not half God, half man. He is truly God, truly man. He, and then you have the Trinity. One God and three persons. You have the Word of God. It is inspired by God, written by men. You have God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. You have uh, security. We are secure in God. We are preserved by Him, but then we're told to persevere. God causes us to persevere, but we're told to persevere. And so, um, so often we run into those, and I think we can just overthink this a little too much. And so that's what we have to be careful about. The point is, get low and stay low. Stay small. Recognize that it was all God's grace. You didn't really do anything to, to earn that. In fact, you did nothing to earn it or deserve it. God was just so very kind and gracious to you. And so, don't get puffed up with pride. Don't be haughty, but fear. Bottom line, don't toy with God. He's good, but He's a consuming fire. He is loving, but He's to be feared, honored, and respected. We are told to come boldly into the throne room of grace. That doesn't mean come brazenly into the throne room of grace. Don't be prideful. Don't be arrogant. Don't be lifted up. Be fearful. Honor God. Respect God. Love God. Continue in His goodness. Verse 23, And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in. And so they, the Jews, if they repent, if they turn back in faith, we're told God will graft them back in. God is able to do that, it says. Verse 24, For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? So if God was able to take and break off branches and bring a, a wild olive branches into this tree, how much more easy would it be for God to take the natural branches and bring them back in? And God's going to do that. God is going to graft them back in. And that's what we're going to see next week as we finish out chapter 11. God's not done with His chosen people, the Jews. He has every intention of bringing them back in. And we're going to talk more about that. So in closing here, conclusion... We've considered 
those who had humble beginnings but ended poorly. And let's close by considering one who began well and stayed faithful to the end. Can anybody think who that is? I can't think of anyone greater than Jesus. He is one who actually came from glory to humility. And He stayed humble the entire time, all the way to the very end. We're told that the night before His crucifixion, as He washed the disciples' feet, says that having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the very end. And He went all the way to the cross. Humble to the very end, He paid the highest price. Who was in the highest place came to the very lowest place and paid the highest price in true humility. And He has called us to walk in that. He said, if I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, if I have served you so, you ought to do the same. A servant is not greater than his Master. We have a Lord who is truly a humble King. And we have no right, no place to raise ourselves up with any kind of pride or arrogance. We are to get low and stay low. Stay small. Because we serve a great God who has done it all for us. And we love Him and honor Him. And we walk in humility as Jesus was very humble. Amen? Alright. Well, we'll go ahead and close here. Let me pray for us. Father, we love You. We praise Your holy name. We thank You so much for Your kindness towards us. Thank You, Lord, that You did it all. That You paid the price. That You accomplished salvation in our, in our stead for us, Lord. So great a salvation. You have saved us to the uttermost. And we worship You, Lord. And pray, I pray, Lord, that we would walk humbly before You. Humbly before our God. And that if we raise anyone up, it's You, Father. That You would be exalted. That we would lift You on high. And that we would give You the glory that You alone are worthy of. So we praise You in Jesus' name. Amen.